Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Chad Jones. I'm a certified financial planner at Allen & Company in Lakeland, Florida, and uh, we are on the Kids & Money podcast as part of the Beyond Dollars & Cents series, uh, and I'm joined by Robin Chaddock, our director of marketing, and John, our illustrious producer. That's right. Illustrious is a few more syllables, and I think I'm worth well, it. It's the only it. word I, I, you know, I've listened to the podcast back, and you know how yeah. you cringe when you hear your own voice, yes. uh, and then I realize, like, what do you, the, the, the crutch words you use all the sure. time, yeah, yeah. and certainly my description descriptor of you is the exact same word every single time. It's illustrious. So now yeah. it's just become part of the title. I appreciate that. It's so. illustrious producer, John. I dig I, that. But I think he's trying to campaign to help you, you know, on the getting a little more, Oh yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah, mean, throw, that, throw some of those superlatives. More cheese, more breathing room, right? right? I dig that. Yeah, absolutely. Every day. <laughs> uh, but yeah, isn't it funny though, when you listen back to that kind of stuff and I, it's almost torture. It's yeah. like self-torture to listen to it. Uh, At this point, I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. So I was kind of like, eh, yeah, is, I got to listen to it for content to make sure I'm like not, you know, over baking some concepts sure. or you, you, can't, you keep talking about the same thing. But yeah, I'm like, man, I say illustrious all the time. It's almost like as bad as the uh, sports figures on ESPN and stuff say, oh, no question, no yeah. question. They mm-hmm. always say no question. Like, mm-hmm. Certainly there's another phrase you can use there, but sure. apparently I don't know how to do the same thing. So. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of absolutely. When, whenever I agree with someone, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's absolutely. my favorite text yep. word. Yeah. Absolutely. All caps. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect is the second favorite. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly have my crutch words. I'm sure I have them in, in doing this podcast as well. But here we are. We're back. We've got like 14 podcasts cast in the can if I counted them correctly. You have, and it's exciting. It's exciting. Seriously. If I hadn't counted them on the website and someone asked me, like, so how many think you did? I'd have been like, seven, eight? Mm-mm. No, <laughs> no, no. You're, And you know, back to really what you were just talking about, I do listen to all the podcasts and I'm like... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm like you. He gets paid to sound good. You and I are mm. doing this kind of this yeah. is a pro bono gig That's here, right? right? That's right. Um, but you really do sound... You sound great. Cool. I have tuned myself it. out. You sound really good. Appreciate it. Yeah, seriously. And John, well, you know, you're That's supposed right. to sound good. The dulcet tones over here. That's there right. we there go. go. There the illustrious smooth, tones. velvety <laughs> voice of John, the illustrious producer. Yeah. Well, so, we, we're glad you're back. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I, as much as I hem and haw about having to do the podcast, I think I kind of enjoy it once I'm here. And uh, you guys obviously uh, grease the skids on that for me. It's a lot easier when you're doing it with people that seem to be enjoying life while you're doing the podcast. <laughs> so not taskmasters, uh, you know, all the time anyway. Sure. So, uh, but yeah, you, you know, we talked and uh, you said, you know, why don't we get back and go maybe a deeper dive on some of these concepts? And uh, I, I agree 100%. And that gives me an opportunity to kind of flesh out kind of the ideas a little bit more. So I started this whole thing uh, way back when, when I, when I wanted to put this in some kind of form together in a book or what have you. And then it became a a blog, of course, which you can find on alleninvestments.com. Uh, go there, and that's under, what is it, media? or uh, And uh, you can find the podcast. You can find the blog. But the whole concept was wrapped around this idea of there's five five uh, uh, main core lessons, and then under each of those main core lessons, you have all the subset lessons, if you will. And it brought me back to when I first put all this together. Uh, I had read uh, a book by Gary Keller, uh, Keller Williams, mm-hmm. Realty. Uh, he has a book called uh, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And he has something in that book called The Nina Rule. Nina was his personal trainer that he had hired, right? And he said what was very interesting to him is when uh, she got there, she says, okay, I got a rule. And that rule is we start with your posture first. I don't, I don't care what it is yet that you want to accomplish I always start, no matter what, with your posture. Yeah, yeah, we all sit now, up and straighter as we Now I'm sitting up posture. straight, feeling bad. But her point was, and it's it's brilliant, is the best of us work on you know our muscle groups maybe a couple hours a few times a week. That's the best of us would do that. 
when all of us, our posture is at work 16 to 18 hours a day. So her idea is let's work on first correcting the thing that you use most often. Well, the analogy, as you can imagine, is perfect for fiscal fitness as much as it is for physical fitness. And this is the way I look at it now. These four, five core lessons are your posture when it comes to fiscal responsibility. It's, it's the, you know, thousands of, it seems like thousands, seemingly innocuous subconscious decisions we make every single day with our money, the small muscle movements, right? Um, and that's where the analogy kind of falls apart because obviously your big muscles keep your posture. But the idea is that you do little things every day that add up to the big things. Because usually when you're talking to someone, you know, maybe uh, a teenager, 13, 14, 15, you know, all, all the way up into college years, and like, what does it mean to be an adult when it comes to finances? They're going to name the major muscle movements of, you know, understanding insurance and, you know, uh, buying a house and buying a car. Yeah, those are all big deals and there's a lot involved. And in fact, we're going to have John talk about his experience here recently with buying a car here mm. at the end of this podcast, uh, <laughs> which I'm excited to, to, to hear about. Um, but so it's this idea that if we can teach the kids the little muscle movements, one, it should make the big muscle movements a little bit easier, but it's the little muscle movements, it's the posture, it's the, it's the decisions you make daily on a small level that are really going to impact this idea of being fiscally responsible. So with that, we're going to kind of go in order, right? So we're going to go back to, so the five are, I'm talking about the five core lessons. The first one is defining rich, and I call that kind of your foundation. Uh, the next, and I'm thinking of an analogy of a house, that's kind of your foundation. The next three are the framework, and that's opportunity cost, that's planning, and that's understanding debt. And then the, the covering, uh, the auspice under which all this stuff kind of works is relational budgeting. Really the idea of just communicating when it comes to, to money. Uh, and we can go on a whole, I'm sure there'll be a whole podcast on that. <laughs> you know what, uh, how emotional money is and what it can do to, to uh, relationships as far as strengthening them, strengthening them or driving a wedge Right. Them. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think we've all experienced one or both of those uh, experiences, maybe even several times over. So we're going to then, we're going to, the idea is to go back to this first concept of uh, defining rich. Uh, so uh, before I kind of start into that diatribe, if you will, um, have either of you had an opportunity to consider kind of breathing room in your finances as it, as it pertains to kind of a definition of rich and the whole stuff thing that we get stuck in the whole circle, any conversations, anybody, anything you've seen in your own life or that's. I, um, I think for me, it, it would go back to the small muscle group types of things in going through my statements. Um, I'm seeing an awful lot of charges um, for streaming and Apple and <laughs> it's absolutely frightening right. what that dollar amount accrues to. And I do it quarterly just to kind of keep in check because it's real easy to say, yeah, Paramount Plus, I need you. Yes, <laughs> sure, sure yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that is one of the things, but like you've teased our audience now about John in the car, um, I'm also in a position where I'm going to have to seriously look at that. And every time I think, I'm still in the position, you can probably, you'll walk us through this, but I'm still going, but I don't want a car payment anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have one. I haven't had one for five years. I don't want another one, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, hopefully you'll kind of talk through that in terms yeah. of what you've taught us, Chad, and kind of how you've lived that out, um, John. So those are really my two most obvious examples right now. Yeah. And I assume, John, you know, you're going to share your story later, but I assume that kind of came to a head of... Oh, yeah. I sat down before I even thought about buying a car because I mean my I was still making payments on my old car but it was you know not as much obviously as, as a new car would be so I had to sit down and make a whole whole budget for like the first time I sat there like in an Excel spreadsheet and like 
wrote down what my fixed expenses are and what my you know average income is you know not accounting for all the you know because i do events and stuff at the station that's all that's important but um i have a very i would say inconsistent income so i had to kind of go peaks and valleys and figure okay like if if i'm sitting at my valleys all the time where 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 can i be what can i afford and i kind of factored that into what what i could do with uh with the car payment and all that and so and uh it's it was interesting to see where all your money goes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> interesting exactly. slash scary yes. in some cases. Yeah. I think and and I what I one of the things I really loved about the podcast, especially early on when you started talking about breathing space and defining rich, um, I realized how comfortable I am because I do have breathing space right now. Mm. And it's it's such a freeing feeling. And, it, and it's been for several years now. It's yeah. really been the last two years. That's fantastic. And yeah. I love what you say, a freeing feeling, right? This is all about the emotional aspect mm-hmm. of money. Uh, so when we come back from the break, uh, we're going to launch in uh, and, and start doing a deep dive. And lesson one, the foundation, Defining Rich. Be right back. All right, so we're back and we're talking about defining rich. Um, you know, uh, we just talked about some very adult examples and we'll, we'll dive a little deeper into John's example. So we're going back to the idea, you know, we're trying to help. The whole idea is kids and money and how we help kids. So if you asked your children to define the word rich, uh, you know, what do you think they would say? And you probably wouldn't be surprised. You'd probably come up pretty quickly with the idea that everybody from age five to age 95 is probably going to have a pretty strong awareness of the word. Uh, we see it a lot in social media and movies and music, and it's why I use the word rich and not wealth. It's just it's the one that most people can can attach themselves to uh, pretty quickly. So what's surprising, I guess, is the idea that it's not so surprising that they all come up with roughly the same uh, concept of definition of rich. What's surprising is that it's so wrong, and we all know it, that if we dive into it, which we're about to do, it's like, well, yeah, of course, that's what the real definition of rich should be. So the wrong definition that everybody, age 5 to 95, always comes up with is kind of the, the accumulation of stuff, right? I, I, I did this class. I've done it for the last few years uh, other than COVID. I've been invited by Miss Robin Seacrest out at Lakeland High School to talk to her leadership class, and I go over this stuff. And that's always my first question is, guys, define rich for me. What is rich? If I say the word rich, what does it mean to you? And they always say, you know, uh, a giant house with a swimming pool, a super fancy car. You know, we, we discussed this on the very first podcast. Uh, but just to kind of reiterate, even little kids will be like lots of toys, mounds of candy, you know, a giant house with a swimming pool. <laughs> they're, they're it's more, always a giant house with a swimming always, pool. Always, always. And some, you know, you name your brand of luxury automobile, you know, and sitting in the driveway or what have you. And, and it's understandable. It's this idea of the accumulation of stuff. It's, it's the wrong definition. And here's why it's the wrong definition. It's got two, two inherent problems, right? Um, the first of which is this is an appetite mentality. The accumulation of stuff is an appetite mentality. And an appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. So you have this moving target that you can't ever fully achieve anyway. And look, I, I sit across the table from a lot of people who have you know, considerable assets uh, that belong to them that have the wrong metric of success because they carry this wrong definition of riches, this accumulation of stuff. And it's this idea, the reason it's a moving target is if you ask them the question, are you rich? Invariably, they'd say, absolutely not. And even if they had a couple commas in their assets, they'd still, and you could keep adding digits, everyone's going to keep saying that carries this definition. They are not rich, not because they're being humble, but they truly feel like they haven't attained success yet because the metric keeps moving for them because they keep assigning themselves to this accumulation of stuff definition. So 
that's the first problem, right? You just, you can't hit that moving target. There's always something more out there to have. There's always something more improved, especially in this day and age and technology and the life cycle of most things that we own is just a couple years before you should, you're expected to upgrade. And our cars are fast approaching that same type of life cycle because it's like driving a smartphone, right? Oh, good so, gosh, no kidding. So so this de- so that that problem of this definition certainly isn't going away. It's only you know becoming more of a uh, a thorn in the side if you will. The second problem is if that is your definition of accumulating stuff, then you are subconsciously implementing a ceiling uh, or a floor, depending on how you want to look at it, as far as the kind of jobs that will allow you to be rich in the first place. So if your definition of rich is accumulation of stuff, and that's your metric of success, what are some of the jobs that come to mind that would that would allow you to do that, John? Athlete. Okay, like, but you'd have to be a famous one, right? Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, Robin thinks she's an athlete, but, you know, I don't know if she's getting paid for it. Right, are you? So, uh, wait, yeah. wait, I'm not getting paid for it. There is a story. I had to jump the fence to get in today. I did it in heels, and I have no wounds. And that's an athlete. Yeah, that we tried, we tried to keep athlete. Robin, but right. it didn't work. That's out. right. <laughs> well. But, yeah, you know, doctors, lawyers, CEOs, yeah. famous people, right. you know, whether it's athletics or music or what have you. So if this is our definition of rich, well, our kids – there's only going to be about, you know, what, 5% of them, if I have to completely make up a statistic, 5% sure. of them are going to be doctors and lawyers and all this kind of stuff. Most of them are going to have very middle class existences. And that's great. You know, our country's made of the middle class. There's nothing wrong with that. But if this is your definition of rich, you can't ever be rich if that's where your status is because of this idea that, you know, you got to have the biggest and best stuff and maybe you won't be able to afford it. So that's... That's two huge problems that we do not want to pass on to our children, right? We, we, we want them to be able to attain this idea of being rich. So we got to work on their definition, right? So if the wrong definition is an accumulation of stuff, the right definition, and we've already teased it, we've already talked about it, certainly in other podcasts, is this idea of having breathing room in your finances, mm. okay? So now let's look at our two problems that the other one, the other definition brought up and see if they impact this one. Well, if breathing room in your finances is your definition, well, then it's no longer a moving target. You mm-hmm. just have to have breathe. You have to spend less than you make. And you can, you can do that. That certainly, that doesn't, that doesn't change. And certainly if you operate on percentages, it's only going to stay that way even as you make more money, right? So if you make X and you spend 75% of X, then you're going to have 25% of X being saved and giving you that breathing room, right? As you prudently save for retirement, which you're not guaranteed, right? We're not guaranteed tomorrow, but prudent would be the prudent thing would be to to save, but also to create some savings accounts to live life now, vacation savings, home improvement savings, car next new to me car savings, you know, um, uh, gift savings because those darn birthdays and anniversaries that come around every single year, yep. it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> so if you're doing those things and you're creating that room. It gives you the feeling that Robin said in the first uh, uh, first uh, section that we had there where you, free, free is that the word freeing, you use? It's very yeah, this freeing. freeing feeling, right? Because rich is an emotion. It's not a status. And when you have the wrong definition, it's a status. When you have the right definition of breathing room, it's a feeling. And it's a feeling, and we'll get to the second problem here, that anyone can attain. It doesn't matter what your job is. You dig ditches, you, you know, uh, infamously, if that's the right word, uh, teachers get underpaid, right? They don't make a whole lot of money and they may think, well, then it's impossible for me to be rich. Well, I, I don't, I don't agree with that because you got the wrong definition if that's what you believe. You can make the money of a middle-class person and be rich 
and I've given this example before, maybe even on the podcast, I've had a client before that made, after bonuses, they made seven figures a year and they were not rich. They had no breathing room in their finances. They made several poor decisions with major muscle movements in their finances and did not feel free, <laughs> certainly didn't have freedom uh, and didn't feel emotionally secure, even though they made all that money. It was it just that's mind that's mind boggling. Right? I mean, you just, it we really have confused ourselves in this country. Society yes. has not done yeah. well in that factor. Yeah. yeah, that's frightening. And conversely, I've had I know several of, of my colleagues have teachers served 30, 35, 40 years in the school system that saved well and they're enjoying a retirement better <laughs> than they ever made while they were a teacher because they made that sacrifice. They enjoyed their life. They enjoyed teaching. They were able to go on vacations during the summer, all that kind of good stuff, and prudently saved. And now they, they I stood them, if I stood them up beside the first client I talked about that made seven figures, they would say, hey, if, if it's a feeling, if rich is a feeling, do you feel rich? Absolutely. And then the person who makes all the money, absolutely not. And got, guess what? That, guy's, that guy has big cars, big houses, plural. Mm. So it's... It's very interesting. So when we come back, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll move from our new definition of rich. Okay, and we're back. And so we're talking about the definition of rich. We have our new definition of rich, our correct definition of rich, which is having breathing room in our finances. And we've, we've eschewed the old definition of accumulation of stuff, right? Okay. So if you can understand that concept, which I'm sure we all can, let's move on to kind of the next level of depth on this. Okay. So the old definition, our society tells us every day that increasing our standard of living will improve our quality of life. So let me say that again. Every day society tells us with the old definition of accumulating stuff that increasing our standard of living will improve our quality of life. Buy this new car, life will be better. Go on this luxury cruise and you'll be more relaxed. Buy these clothes and you'll be more popular, right? To increase our standard of living, to buy these things, we must spend more money. That's accumulating stuff, right? When we accumulate stuff, we decrease the cushion between money coming in versus money going out, which is the breathing room we're trying to create. So we're, we're, we're counteracting that idea. So can you increase your spending beyond your income? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. You can do that with debt. So does that really increase your quality of life? So if you're spending more, your standard of living, uh, you know, conceptually is improving because you've now got this stuff, this better, new, improved, bigger, fancier, whatever stuff, but you're possibly spending money that is closing the gap on your breathing room. In fact, you may even cross that path into the negative. In other words, be in debt, and now you're paying on a credit card to have all this stuff. So technically, your standard of living is higher because you got all this new, fancy, cool, comfortable stuff, but your finances are such that you don't feel a quality of life. Again, going back to my uh, former client who made all that money and, and never felt really comfortable. So according to a recent Gallup poll, young adults with $50,000 or more in debt fall short of those with no debt in three key areas of well-being, financial security, physical health, and sense of purpose. And that last one, sense of purpose, I mean, if that doesn't cut to the center of a parent's heart. So if your kid, basically this Gallup poll is saying if your kid is carrying debt, they have a reduced sense of purpose, poor physical health, and certainly poor physical uh, financial security. So I would submit that your quality of life and your sense of purpose only increases when you have financial margin 
or breathing room. So in some cases, you have to deny the increased standard of living to increase the quality of life. It doesn't mean you can't have nice things, right? And, and it doesn't mean it's permanent. It doesn't mean it's permanent. It, this, it's often trading short-term gratification for long-term gratification, which is foreshadowing, you know, our, our follow-on concepts when we talk about opportunity cost and planning and, 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 uh, and understanding debt, certainly. But before we get there, so here's another way to look at it. I, I like analogies, and I, I may have covered this before, but uh, I'll do it again. So imagine you're at the Grand Canyon. All right, you're standing on the edge of a cliff. Your toes are hanging over and a strong tailwind behind you. So where's your focus? All of your being is concentrating on not falling. I mean, you, you can't relate to anything going on around you, and you certainly can't relax. But what if you were 30 feet away from the edge? Now you're enjoying the majesty of the sight before you, and you're aware of your surroundings, and you're relaxed. Why? Because you have margin, room between you and the chasm. Our new definition, Rich, centers on the quality of life and the emotional benefits of having distance between income and spending, just like between you and the chasm that is the Grand Canyon. The old definition centers on standard of living with the false assumption that you'll achieve the emotional benefits by having more stuff while pushing you closer and closer to the edge. And you and I both know better. I want to be careful that I'm not trying to bash having stuff. The problem is I often sit across, again, the desk from good people, great success, who have chosen the metric of stuff to reflect how they're winning with money. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. Quite simply, their need for more eclipses the rational decision to spend less than you make. So finally, I want, I want you and your children to have nice things or stuff. However, this inevitable accumulation should be a byproduct of having margin in your finances, not the goal or end state. So recognize that I said the inevitable accumulation of stuff. We've been doing this the right way in my household, the right way as far as making sure we have breathing room and saving prudently and all this kind of stuff. We've been doing this the right way. We still accumulate stuff. We, it's just, it's, it's inevitable, <laughs> okay? Because again, we like nice things. There's nothing wrong with it as long as it's, I've saved up for this and I can now afford it, so I get it. And I would joke with my wife all the time, I would love to have a bonfire in the backyard and burn half the stuff in our garage. I mean, <laughs> I, I also have an issue where I'm not as sentimental as, I don't get sentimentally tied to artifacts. Well, I'm the opposite. It's, 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 I've got so much like, just stuff crammed into my garage, <laughs> right. camping equipment that I've never used. Oh, it's great. Well, see, that's at least practical stuff that can be pulled out, dusted off, and used. Sure. There's a lot of stuff in my garage, and I'll just keep it at this, that cannot ever be used again. Mm. And it's just sitting there for simply memory's sake. Uh. And it's for this torturous exercise of looking at it and crying. Mm. And then you put it back for some other period down the road where you're going to sure. pull it out, look at, it, look at it, and cry. I don't, I don't get that. Yeah. <laughs> So. so that means you have a big, what I call the giant Tupperware bins of kids' artwork from when they were in the second grade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that. I know the bins that but you have. Not even, not just that, although that is a huge percentage. We're talking about stuff that our parents kept on us that they have now finally been like, okay, I don't need this anymore. Yeah. Here's your old stuff that I kept for me sentimentally. Now I'm giving it to you to add to your stuff. Okay, George Carlin does a great stand-up on, on other people's stuff. Right. <laughs> I, that's as much as I could say about that, mm -hmm. given George Carlin's uh, <laughs> uh, choice of words. But, uh, oh, my gosh, yeah, we got so much stuff. But anyway, the idea is that, look, I'm not against accumulating stuff, and it's going to happen anyway. Just we need to be a little bit smarter and understand that this idea of increasing our standard of living 
is not necessarily it's not it's not a direct correlation that our quality of life will increase. In fact, there are a lot of cases where I could argue that it does the exact opposite. Your standard of living may increase, but your quality of life will decrease if you don't have the money to afford it and pay for it up front. So then I'll carry us into, uh, you know, kind of the last part of uh, delving into this uh, defining rich idea. And uh, we have a few lessons uh, in the podcast, or excuse me, in the blog and, and in, the, uh, in, the, in the little little book, a little, uh, I call it my pamphlet that I wrote. <laughs> That's all based on. And uh, one of my favorite lessons in here and one of our favorite stories and the, it brought one of Robin's favorite stories uh, is about lemonade stands. I love the lemonade right? stand. What I love about the lemonade stand is this this lesson has been around for since there's been lemonade, right? Sure, <laughs> so, sure. I mean, my dad probably had a lemonade stand. He's 82. So uh, it's just a tried and true. And in fact, I think I mentioned this before. And if anybody remembers... Uh, what was the what was the show with uh, uh, Donald Trump and had all the uh, people vying for a chance that he would fire him and The Apprentice The Apprentice yeah. Thank you The very first Apprentice the very first challenge they had and you got to remember all these people are just you know dressed in their Armani suits and and all this kind of and stuff These are and famous people who have arrived no, no, So this was when Apprentice first started So oh, it was, it was not, not famous the famous people, people. These okay. were these were Harvard MBA grads okay. you know Yale doctorates all this kind of stuff Just trying but, to but, but vie for a chance they, to work for Donald Trump Vie for a chance to work for Donald Trump And so it was this basically televised reality show interview process you know to become an apprentice And the very first thing that I do remember they're in New York City is they had to run a lemonade stand I think it was lemonade. If it wasn't lemonade, it was, but it was that idea. They had to run a simple, basic, you know, 12 year old stand out in somewhere in New York City. Upper Manhattan. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Exactly. So, I mean, that's how tried and true this is. So, I use this as well as trying to understand the idea of having breathing room in your finances because we take this concept of a lemonade stand, which is basically the concept of a business, right? And you get your kids to, whether they actually do it physically, or you just talk them through the exercise, both are, are just as beneficial, depending on, you know, if your kids are visual or auditory learners or what have you. But the idea, okay, let's start off with what do we need to develop a lemonade stand? Well, I mean, even the littlest kid can say, uh, lemonade. <laughs> we need That's lemonade. Right. That was, I got you that know? one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe a little older kid would be like, well, we need cups to put the lemonade in. And you just, you tease it out, right? You don't do it for them. Don't, don't make the list for them and ask them, are you missing anything, you know? Get them to tease it out, tease it out. Use, use a good 10 minutes uh, to tease this uh, idea out and get them to list all these things. Like, well, all these things cost money. So now let's kind of figure out what they cost. And if you can keep their attention, if you're keeping their attention, then, you know, get them to guess what the prices are. Because that's always fun, especially with little kids. You're like, how much are 50 cups? And they'll be like, uh, $100? <laughs> I have no clue. Right? So you start assigning the uh, right proportions of value to things, you know, uh, as a kind of ancillary bit benefit to some of these lessons. But anyway, they list out kind of those expenses. Okay, well, now you have your expenses. You have no idea how much money you're going to make. But at least you know you know how much you need to make to break even. They get to learn that little phrase, break even, right? As any business would love to do in their first, you know, 12, 24, 36 months because uh, usually it takes a while, you know, there's capital outlay up front before you can become profitable. So you walk them through the idea of lemonade stand, or you have them do a lemonade stand, and they get to see, you know, whether they under undershoot what their expenses were, break even, or overshoot. And then you get to ask the all-important question that we ask with almost all these lessons, how does that make you feel? So you have all these expenses, you spent $100, and you ran your lemonade stand for a few hours, and you made 98 bucks. How does that make you feel? 
well, crummy. I didn't make what I spent, you know. Uh, now, it's a little harder, you know, mom or dad spent the money, the kid didn't. So there's a little less friction there, right? <laughs> the right. pain isn't isn't quite as much, but uh, uh, but they could they get the idea, you know, if they feel bad that they mom or dad wasn't able to get their money back. But what if you made $120? I feel great. Okay, that, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about the definition of rich and the proper definition is a feeling or an emotion of having this breathing room in your finances, that's what we're talking about. A status definition isn't going to give you that. If it gives it to you, it gives it to you for a fleeting moment of that new car smell or that, you know, having walked into your uh, newer, bigger house for the first time. But you know what? In a few months, it's going to go right back to, you know, ogling the uh, the neighbor's bigger house or fancier car or what have you. But when you create that space and you know you are on top of this and you're in control, it just gives you a feeling that's very free, mm-hmm. very freeing. So after this, we're going to move into our last section. We're going to hear about John's uh, experience in car buying and oh, see yeah. you know, how all this ties to being an adult now. Oh, God. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. We've teased it enough. Uh, we want to hear John's experience with uh, buying his car here recently. So, John, take it away, sir. Oh, man. Well, let me tell you, it was uh, an exercise in, in this market, it is unbelievable what, what some dealerships are trying to get away with and stuff like that. And I'm not going to name any names because, you know, you don't want to speak ill of the uh, sure. <laughs> potential sponsors. You know, I don't know how Alan sure. relationship <laughs> is with any of these dealerships, so I'm going to go ahead and keep that to myself. But... Oh my goodness! I, so what, let me take you back a little bit. When I first bought my car, I bought it. I had a 2013 Corolla, and I bought it uh, in 2017, and I bought it from a, a dealership in Polk County, we'll say, um, and I got absolutely taken for a ride. I mean, when I tell you, like, granted, I have very limited credit history and the whole thing, but I brought in, you know, three grand down. It was like a thirteen thousand dollar car. I was like, all right, like I can finance ten grand. I'm not. I wasn't doing great financially, but I was like, you know what? Between you know uh, deliveries here and there and blah blah blah, you know, because I, I was doing deliveries for a sandwich shop. And it was, anyways. I uh, I ended up getting in at thirteen percent interest. Oof. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough. I was paying two. 200 some odd dollars for this uh, a month for this car over seven years. Oh my God. Yeah. At 13% interest. It was killer. So when I was like, you know what? In this market, I know it's not easy to buy a car, but my car is kind of getting old. And I was like, I need to get rid of this thing. I'm still going to be making payments for another year or so. I don't need to be doing this anymore. So I went and I bought a car. Now, all over the place, you see, you know, all these dealer markups. You're talking like seven, eight grand for everything. Um, you know, on top of what the MSRP is, you know, they say, oh yeah, we'll give you MSRP. And then, well, we got all these dealer add-ons where, you know, these, uh, the nitrogen filled tires are, you know, $600. And, uh, someone yeah, put... talk, talk specifically, because when you and I yeah. were talking about this, I want you to talk about some of those add-ons. So people yeah. pay attention to that. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I, di- I didn't realize this. So I went into this, these huge like YouTube holes, right. Of people who are you know, former car dealers and, you know, all this stuff and people just talking about, you know, these are certain things that a lot of car dealers are going to try to get away with nowadays. And so I was, you know, going crazy with all the research. I've never done more research in my life. When I was in high school, I was not a research guy. I was not a study guy. I was like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to pay attention to the teacher 75% of the time. And then whatever I get on the test or quiz is what I'm going to get. I was not, a, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, laureate over here okay, by any stretch of the imagination. So I thought like, I need to really get crazy with, with, with all the research I was doing. So I, I went in and watched a bunch of videos on YouTube, read a bunch of articles online and all that. And I didn't know this, but a lot of times these these dealers they're getting, um, what's where I'm looking for, they're getting these cars not directly from the manufacturer. They're getting a lot of times from distribution companies, 
And so it kind of keeps them out of the loop when it comes to what comes in on the car already. Now, certain dealers will just add stuff onto it. So we're talking, like I said, the nitrogen tires. Where I mean, air is like 80% nitrogen as it is. Like that's 20% nitrogen that you're getting, whatever benefit they say it's going to be. seriously, you'll yeah. see that on a mm-hmm. sticker and you'll go, I better have nitrogen. Yeah. Sure. I yeah. mean, you know. Air it sounds like my tires are going to blow up. Yeah, right. exactly. So between that and then people were charging $400 to throw some vinyl uh, pinstripes on the side of the car. And then people want to put a roof rack on it. Oh, that's $1,500 for the roof rack. I'm like, what roof rack costs $1,500? I'm gonna put a shopping cart on top of my car and call it a day. <laughs> so you know, I, I kind of you know went in and, and tried to figure out where I could get a good deal on everything, and, and I ended up finding a nice car at a, at a dealership locally, you know, in, in town that wasn't you know gonna that, that didn't offer. Uh, you know, they didn't add any extra stuff on it. Like they said, this is the price. The price is the price. And I even negotiated it further down because a little fun fact for you: the uh, the longer a car is on a lot, I don't know if you know this, the more a dealer wants to get rid of the car. You know, so because it, it, it occupies a certain amount of space, and it's, it's like much like a grocery store. You know, if, if your product's not pushed on a shelf, that shelf space is valuable intrinsically. Right. So you want to get you want to push that product out. You know, as soon as possible to get either more of the same product on or get something else in there that's going to sell faster. So. I found a, a, a dealership in town that was selling, you know, that had inventory, which is huge because a lot of places don't have inventory anymore. Um, and it was just, I mean, it was a whole mess, but I ended up getting $1,800 under MSRP, no dealer add-ons, nothing like that, and a, a decent interest rate, thankfully. Um, again, I, I try to get in under the gun because I know interest rates are supposed to be going up, and and uh, yeah, definitely not paying 13% anymore, closer to closer to two or three, so that's, that's good. Wow. Yeah. One of the wow. things you shared with me, John, was the longer they sit on the lot, there's a code, and yeah. you can figure out as a consumer yeah. what that code is, which will give you more optimal leverage when yeah. you are negotiating. So there are certain tools online, I'm, I'm going to take care of not plug anyone specifically, but there are certain uh, websites online that you can go on where if you search by VIN number, because every on every uh, dealer website, the deal, the cars that they have listed there have a VIN number. So you can call them ahead of time and say, hey, is this car still on the lot? And they say, yeah, sure it is. Or maybe they say, no, it's not. But you plug that, that VIN number, the, the car that you want, into some of these websites, and you just, it's a quick Google search away, and it'll tell you, hey, this car has been on this lot for however long. Hmm. And so when you're sitting there, I mean, and, and a car has been on the lot for a month, especially in this in this car market, you'd be like, hey, listen, your car's not, this car isn't selling. I know you want to get a new car in here, because uh, a lot of car manufacturers will actually send rebates out to car dealerships for uh, for like a new spot allotment. It's like a rebate that, you know, for for buying this car from us, we're going to pay you a little bit for occupying that space on your lot. And then hopefully that, that car goes out the door fast and they can pocket that rebate. But again, the longer it's on that lot, the more likely it's going to sit there. And so a lot of times dealerships will actually send cars to auction if it's been on a lot for too long. Now, it's not going to be a, just a public auction. It'll be to another dealership. So another dealership will come by and buy it at a reduced rate or whatever it is. Um, or you have to have a special license to attend some of these auctions. But if, if a new, even if it's a brand, brand, brand new car, if it's been sitting on a lot because either, you know, maybe it came from the factory with a scuff on it and someone decided they didn't want it or just it's a model and a trim package that no one likes or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but you, it, you can get some leverage that way. If you're looking at a car, hey, this car's been on the lot for 40 days. Like the car I saw was on the lot, by, for, according to this website, for about 42 days. And I was like, listen, listen, <laughs> you want to get rid of this car. And I want a car. <laughs> I don't need a car today. I could drive out of here. My Corolla had less than 100,000 miles on it. You know, maybe it do some little patchwork here and there. Maybe, you know, $1,000 for new struts did, or whatever it is. Did the but, website, yeah. by any chance, give you any idea? Okay, if it's been sitting there for 20 days, you have this leverage. If it's been sitting there for 30 days, you not have that, to, Yeah, okay. not that specifically. Okay. Um, if, there, if there is one out there, I have yet to find it. But, okay. you know, it just it gives you a little more uh, like confidence what's, what's going too into the situation. What's too long? When is it? It's been sitting there a long time. and. 
that can figure into your more more than a couple weeks, especially in okay. this market right you know, now because, because there's no inventories yeah, on any lot. Right. Okay. So if a car's if, if this in this economy, if cars are sitting on a lot for an extended period of time, people are going to think wonder why what's wrong with that car. Number right. one. Number two, dealers again because it occupies the space. They want, they want to get rid of it. So if they're if they're looking at this car and they say, hey, it's been here for forty days, and and in this in this economy, no one wants to buy it. We got to get rid of it somehow. Right. So you know that's that's another feather in your cap, so yeah. to speak. And I will say, a lot of times there, there's so much power. I mean, when it comes to when you're negotiating a car deal, of just being able to walk away. Yeah, that's. I mean, we had talked a little bit about that off the air. Right. I was like, if you don't need a car, first off, don't buy a car. But it's better to to buy a car when you don't need it than it is when you need because you have a lot more leverage. You say, hey, listen, yeah. I can just come back a week from now, two weeks from now, go yeah. to this dealership, that dealership. It doesn't matter to me. I'm on my own timeline. Yeah, yeah. As long as it's not there's no emergent need. I mean, you're obviously looking for a car because you know it's you're entering that season of life with your current car that right. like. More than likely, the next thing that happens to this is going to be more expensive than what it's worth. Sure. So <laughs> exactly, and that's kind of where I was at. Where I was like, you know what? Like, I I I need to do struts on my car. I knew it. I knew that, and it was going to cost about a thousand fifteen hundred dollars to do that. Now my car was worth much more than that. But I was like, do I want to just eat fifteen hundred dollars and take on a personal loan because I don't have more fifteen hundred dollars in cash just lying around? Unfortunately, right. do I want to do that, or do I want to go out and buy a safer car, a nicer car, whatever it is? And so right. I made that choice for myself, and it was it was good to be able to just go from car dealership to car dealership and say, hey, this, this car dealership over here said they're going to give me this car, this trim level for this price. Can you match that? And that's that's another thing, too. A lot of times people get focused on the monthly payment. What can you afford monthly payment? Of course, monthly payment is huge. But out-the-door price is the number one thing you want to focus on when you're talking to a dealer Absolutely. about buying a car. It's like, what is this car going to cost me? Break it down for me. Itemize what everything is going to cost me. And they'll sit there and say, oh, well, we got you know these uh, documentation fees for $200. And then there's a dealer fee for another $600. And then there's, uh, again, the, the nitrogen tires and all the, all the yeah. uh, dealer add-ons. Now, if it's on the sticker, it's on the sticker. You're not going to do a whole lot with that. But Keep our vending machines working. Right, know. exactly. Oh, we got to pay <laughs> the, the lights on. Yeah, exactly. We got to pay the, the people who uh, run the documents in the back. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's a whole thing. But yeah. uh, focus on the out-the-door price. I, I love that. I So I said off the air, I love that back and forth yeah. it's 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 a game of chess mm -hmm. you know and uh and you both know it mm -hmm. but no one is allowed it's like this unwritten rule you can't we know why we're sitting here sure. having this you know yeah. discussion it's we have to act like this is surprising to us mm -hmm. on both sides of the table <laughs> right it's so it's so fun there's theater involved mm -hmm. there's strategy involved sure. i love the whole thing but there's obviously a lot of people out there that can't stand the idea of having to do that sure. but here's what i would suggest is I think part of the reason people like me or John enjoy it is because we are controlling our money. Mm -hmm. We are, it's a tool for us. We are not a slave to it. Yeah. And I think it's that understanding that's part of the reason we feel comfortable and want to engage because yes, you need to make, make money, but I don't need you to ha make all the money you possibly can. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, the, the market suggested retail price of a car isn't what they paid from the, from the manufacturer to get that car. Right. Yeah. They paid, you know, thousands of dollars less than that to get that car. So there's, there's exactly. some wiggle room there and they make enough money on people who don't know better yeah. to justify, okay, you know, we may not make every single cent we can, like you said, on this guy or girl or whoever it is, but you know, if we can make, you know, a few hundred dollars and that's, then that'll be fine. That's a lot right. of times. That's 
Hey, we need to have like a uh, former car salesman on the show. It would I be would great. I'll yeah. tell you awesome. what. And the other thing is the two of you are talking about it. When a woman mm-hmm. walks into a lot, it's a completely different dynamic. Mm-hmm. And we shared kind of our stories on that too. Yeah. I too love to go in. I love to do it. I just don't want the car payment, right, but right. I love the chase. <laughs> yes, It's fun. Yeah. I just, I make days out of it. I do the same thing you did. <laughs> but um, thank you so much, John, for sharing the story with us because it really... I think it ties back to a lot of what we have learned through the podcast with kids and money. It has to start with us before we can share the, these ideas and strategies with our children. So we both have been good students, I think, in terms of what we've learned from Absolutely. your podcast. Absolutely. No, I appreciate you guys uh, being on this journey with me. And uh, we'll uh, be talking to you all again soon. Again, I'm Chad Jones. I'm a certified financial planner with Allen & Company. You can reach me at 863-616-6054 or at chad.jones at lplfinancial.com. Uh, we're located at alleninvestments.com where you can find uh, Robin and I. You can find uh, the uh, blog. You can find the podcasts under the media uh, dropdown. And uh, we'll be talking to you again soon. Take care. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC.